Sometimes you hear about certain things that you can't believe are true. But as soon as you begin digging, you find out that things were a lot worse than you originally thought. At least that rang true for me when I first read about Russia's cannibal island. A small island of criminals who were sent away from society who eventually turned on themselves. That was the surface truth of this sad and brief moment of history, at least until classified Soviet archives became public, and with it, the truth about the island of Natsino came to light. Amongst these archives were detailed telegrams and witness accounts from officials describing Stalin's bureaucratic utopia quickly turned carnage. We learned the true, horrifying story of the forced deportation of socially dangerous elements from Moscow and Leningrad to the frozen hellscape that was the island of Natsino. Of the most gut-wrenching details of this whole ordeal, an elderly peasant woman's personal account of when she was a young child hit the hardest. We were living near Natsino and every spring we left for the island to harvest the bark that was sent downstream. It was our only source of income. The whole family went along and we took enough food to spend the season there. That year we saw people everywhere. They'd been brought to the island. People said they brought people to the island and were asking how many. It turned out that there were about 13,000 of them. They were trying to escape. They asked us, Where's the railway? Where's Moscow? Leningrad? They were asking the wrong people. We've never heard of those places. People were running away, starving. They were given a handful of flour. They mixed it with river water and drank it, and then got sick with diarrhea. People were dying from dysentery. They were dying everywhere. They were killing each other. Alongside the river, near the village, there was a mountain of flour. You want some flour? Here. Here you go. They sent two guards to defend our village in case we were attacked. As soon as the guards caught one of them, they would put him on a boat and take him to the other side of the river, where they shot him, threw his body into the river, where the current carried it away. On the way to the other side of the river, they made him sing dirty songs, threw breadcrumbs at him, and then made him sing again. On the island there was a guard named Kostya. He was a young fellow. He was courting a pretty girl who had been sent there. He protected her. One day he had to be taken away for a while and he told one of his comrades, take care of her. But with all the people there, the comrade couldn't do much. The people grabbed the girl, tied her to a tree, cut off her breasts, muscles, everything they could eat. Everything. They were hungry. They had to eat. When Kostya came back, she was still alive. He tried to save her, but she had lost too much blood. She soon died after. When you went along the island, you saw flesh wrapped in rags. Human flesh that had been cut and hung on trees. 
I heard that when people on the island saw the doctor pass by, they said, there's one that would be good to eat fat as he is. He ran. The militia took him away so they wouldn't eat him. and I'm not and I'm just <laughs> and then I'm t- <laughs> no wait wait I have something for him boom shut down now you just fucking me aren't you <laughs> I'm just wondering why all these people like kids the weird history and eerie tales podcast concentrate on the loop that's what we do wow <laughs> FYI there's nothing wrong all right, welcome everybody to another episode of the Weird History Retails Podcast. I am your host, Moses Sorry. With me as always is my brother Josh. Yo, what's going on, people? And we are fucking back. We're finally back, We're baby. Fi- at least both of us are back. Mm-hmm. Achi can't, you know, Achi can't be with us this week because obviously we're still under quarantine. And then later on in the episode, we are going to address the elephant in the room of why we've been g- gone for so long. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we're back with a. I want to say fucked up, too fucked up episode. I I think every episode we do is uh, kind of fucked up. No, we fuck up episodes. True, true, touche, touche. We do fuck up episodes. This this one's gonna be a fucked up episode because mm-hmm. we are gonna be talking about 1930s Russia and mm-hmm. something Mother Russia, Mother Russia, and we're gonna be talking about a cannibal island that went by the name of Natsino that was part of. Stalin's ethnic cleansing of his big cities like Moscow and Leningrad, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. is fucked up, as you guys already know when you get by hearing just the intro. The intro was just a few account, just an, that was just account of one person. Yeah, of one person. There's millions or thousands. Well, in total millions. In, in, yeah, yeah, total millions. But in our little universe of the whole deportation. A hundred thousand, a, a few thousand, two thousand. So, um, before we get started, I wanted to talk. I wanted to mention about. Well, I want to mention three words that we're gonna that I, we're gonna be going over, over and over again. And basically, it's just short little glossary, just so you guys understand what we're talking about when we mention these few words. Yeah. First one is the gulag, which is the main administrative agency for the camps created in 1930. So when we mention gulag. No, they were just mentioning the agency that was in charge of setting up these camps. And then we have the OGPU, which is the overall political administration, which is, which is basically the whole system that's in, that's doing this whole thing. Mm-hmm. That's doing the deportation, that's doing the arresting, that's doing everything, right? And then we have the, the Comandaturas, which is, well, Comandaturas, which is the agency under the Gulag, which is responsible for managing the people being deported, mm. right? So, again, mm. Gulag is the agency in charge of setting up the camps. 
the commandaturas or the is the agency in charge of shipping people out and then the OGPU is basically everything combined, right? So that's what we're going to be talking about. And um, in order for you guys to get a better idea of the hellish landscape that these people went through, we're going to be talking about 1920s Russia. We're going to we're going to paint you a bigger picture of how people's lives were before this fucking insane savagery happened. And it was and this 1920s potato famine. And it, to make things worse, it's it's like what you just said earlier, the ethnic cleansing. That itself will tell you how fucked up this whole uh, island, this process, this affair, as known as a, a Xeno affair. Um, it's, it's pretty fucked up. But like you said, let's go back to the 1920, right? It's spe- specifically 1921, 1922, of this catastrophe known as the Russian famine. Now, the cause of the Great Famine is a combination of obviously natural disaster mixed with political affair, or I like to say political actions and these political action is known as the russian civil war which was a multi-party battle in the russian empire so the civil war is happening all throughout russia here's a picture all throughout russia and there's five or six different parties that are fighting to become the dominant uh political system but the two major parties that we're going to talk about or just mention were the red army which was fighting under the Bolshevik uh, uh, government, right? The Bolshevik government, which it was essentially socialism, where everyone that was fighting for the Bolshevik was, yeah, socialism is the way. And then you had your white army. And they described the white army as a loosely faction. And the reason for that is because there was favored multiple interests of political systems. So a few were like, capitalism and another few was monarchism so it's just different so it's kind of like the equivalent of today of someone being a centrist where they're like i'm not left i'm not right i'm in the middle because i like parts of this parts of that kind of kind of yeah yeah, yeah. so long story short they lost the white army lost the red army became thing the the bolshevik uh became dominant again the battle lasted a little bit more than 1923 but that's another topic for another story um, and this is where the political affair really um, did a burden and just fucked up the landscape and the agricultural world of Russia. Here's why. Because throughout this whole civil war, parties, all, all the parties, had provisioned themselves with the requisition of farmland. So let's break that down. To provision oneself is to resupply. And the requisition, right, it's a term where it's a official order of military, right, saying, yo, we need your land because of military reasons or government reasons. Okay, so you add the natural disaster, which I'm about to talk about right now, which is a drought. With this, this is why so many of people were left to starve to death, right? Combine these two and bam, you get this fuck, fucking clusterfuck. And the worst part is, it was when when they requisitioned these farmlands, it was little to nothing in return. So these people were forced to give. Obviously, these people were 
poor people, usually people that worked in the farmland were your peasants, quote unquote peasants. Yeah. So they will take all their food, all their supplies, and give it to the army because it needed well, the army to persist fighting, so it need food and other supplies. It got too bad. It got to the point where the where they the Bushwick will send what they call food detachments, which were sent from the city down to the farmland, saying, "Hey, we need all your food." And the worst part is that these peasants they they would save a certain amount of food throughout this uh, uh, horrible uh, natural disaster, whether it's famine or drought, whatever. And they were forced to give everything away. And this situation was ripe for famine. You combine the natural disaster plus these policies and this requisition of food, you, you get this outcome. So let's talk about this natural disaster. So Russia's harvest, it's literally hinged on great weather. Okay, The farmland was worked literally by hand. There was very few machinery to aid this agricultural uh, uh, farmland and deal with. And droughts usually occur five or seven years. So they know that, okay, within five or seven years, we're going to have this drought or yes. the, some fucking weather fuck. So they know. So they have a timetable of when the shitty weather is exactly. going to come. Exactly. Unfortunately, that shitty weather came in 1921, right? There's different regions of Russia that were affected by this drought, uh, especially in the Volga region, right? In the city of Samara as well, where. The drought was literally horrible. And, and like a few examples that I'm going to give later on, because like my brother said, this happens every, this happens a lot for them where it's a timetable where sometimes these droughts, they won't even allow them to grow 25% of what they needed of what they usually grow. Yeah. Causing crop failures and food shortages. So they know how to prepare for what we call the natural disaster. But they had no idea that the Civil War, on top of that, was going to cause this. <laughs> I mean, how do we describe this? Like this catastrophe. Now, most peasants prepared for crop, for crop failures by storing years of grain in reserve. That's natural. You know, shit's about to happen within a year or so, whatever. Boom, let's prep for it. Every year they set a little bit aside. So a little bit aside. Sixth, seventh year, they have enough to get them through it. But that was taken away. Yeah. Because of the Bolshevik policies, this these food detachment were forced to go back into the farmland and take whatever resources and whatever reserves they had. Now, Russian peasants, they were like, you know what? We got to flee the countryside and go to cities. Hopefully, we'll get jobs in factories where they have food. Because all the food was going to the city and to the army. So, it's like, fuck. And it, but it makes sense. Though. If you are a, a farmer or what they call a kulak, which is a, a, a rich farmer, you're thinking, all right, all my food is going to the fucking city. We have no food here. If you want to eat, we'll go to the fucking city. Yeah. Yeah. And they, and they went to the fucking city. They went to the city and they found the situation no better. You know, they get to the city. And what we learn is that Russia, if they don't want you around, they'll just ship you the fuck out. Out of sight. Out of mind. And what a lot of these people were, kulaks, which is, re, which is what they call rich, uh, rich peasants, which is which is weird. Which is rich peasant, which I, I'm, I'm assuming is like a farmer yeah, yeah, for them. So they just get shipped out to these uninhabitable lands. These lands that are that are that have no people living there. And if, they, and if there are people living there, they're like mountain men who've lived there for so long. 
that it's that it, like that peasant lady from the intro when they were asking her where's Moscow, where's Leningrad, some of the biggest cities in Russia. They were like, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never heard of these cities before. Mm-hmm. Those are the kind of people that are living in these areas. These areas that are barren. They're fucking frozen. There's no roads, no railways. They get shipped out there to go. You know what? We don't like you. Go over there and grow that fucking land. And a lot of these people that get sent over there and they start the small little villages because Russia. They were in this. They were in the era of industrialization. So they're like, we want to be a powerhouse. We want to be, you know, a strong force in the world. So we can't be doing that just by being farmers. So bring people to build strong towers, to bring factories, to do all this. But in order for you to do this, you need food, which is what all, the, which is what happened. They were just stealing all the food from the farmers. So they yeah, the Bolshevik policies. Yeah, the Bolshevik yeah. policies. So what they were doing with these peasants, they're like, you know what? I don't want to die. Let me go to the city. They go to the city, and then you get shipped out as a special settler or an exile, and you'd get shipped out to one of these places for you to start that farmland, so you could, so they could cultivate it, and they have more farm for more, more. Uh, area more whatever more resources from them to steal from because it's still russian land except it's just uninhabitable no one's living there so what do you do send these people you don't want send them the fuck up there and let them figure it out wait two three years everything's cool all right start sending this shit back yeah this happened after a certain time frame like when this first happened many were going to the city and they i I forgot the exact date, but after that date, if you go to the city and you're coming from these farmland, this port, and that's when they were they were shipped, they were exiled, and they were just dealt with. So this is the picture that I'm trying to present, how bad these peasants were living, right? Which brings, which leads us to the horror behind what we call the Great Famine. Okay, the Great Famine affected many cities in Russia, especially in Samara, which is in the center of the Volga region. The policies and the drought combined forced millions, okay, I'm talking about millions, into starvation. Starvation. The rapid starvation made people eat anything that was technically edible. From dogs, cats, grass... That's the park. Dirt. The grass and the dirt. I'm like, what the f- Acorns. Yeah, it's, it's, it's completely fucked up. And last but not least, when all those resources were gone and the death tolls were rising, was rampant, it led to eating humans. Cannibalism. Cannibalism. Now, the reports of cannibalism were observed and told by many foreign relief workers. So let's just backtrack. When all this was ha- well, when all this was first happening in nineteen um, from nineteen seventeen nineteen twenty, uh, th- yeah, nineteen twenty, Russia didn't really uh, acknowledge this catastrophe. They were like, "Yo, we're Russia. We know how to handle famine. We know w- we've been through this before." Until they realized that their own people. Were eating each other. They were butchering each other and murdering each other, and it got to the point where Russia was like, "Fuck, you know what? We need help. We need charity." So you have the Swedish Red Cross helping, aiding, and then you have the ARA, which is an American Relief Administration, in which they sent these workers to provide. And the numbers ridiculous. On daily, the resources were able to feed 3.2 million people daily. 
daily. Just think about it. Like, holy shit. So Russia finally accepted that. And when the workers went over there, this is what they saw. This is certain, uh, and these are the reports of the what counts. they saw, the accounts of what they actually saw. So some workers found parents literally killing and eating their own children. Another count report stated that a mother was feeding her surviving children with the body of her deceased daughter, which is an image on that article that we have that, in the that, uh, that we will post up. If you guys want to see all some of these pictures, go to our Instagram at at the Weird History Eerie Tales Pod. In order for you to see, these pictures are brutal, so just giving you guys heads up on heads what to up. expect. Or if you guys are listening to it now, just type in 1920s cannibal uh, Russian famine. famine, and you will see these pictures. And yeah, there's so many pictures, so many pictures of of, of, of people in the state of starvation and like a meat market where they have. Just kids or people or just human parts just hanging on the table. This is what what we're selling. What we're selling, and then you just see heads and torsos and legs on tables, limbs all around. Um, another report is they saw peasants, right? These people digging up recently buried corpses to eat, not only to eat but for the flesh. Again, a lot people in in this uh, this region, you were forced to adapt. It's either it went from eating your your grain, your flour with water to seeds, bark, grass, and then to your dogs, your own daughter, your own yeah, cats, and then led on to other people, your 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 beloved ones, right? Or some will will hunt for flesh and they'll sell it to the black market. So let's say you're not cannibal, but you're like, fuck, I need to eat something. They will go and either murder or here digging up a recent corpse, to grave rob, to skin the to skin the body and sell the skin for food. So it's like holy shit, so much accounts of that just going, and this is going on all throughout this region, right? Because Samara and the Volga region uh, were hit the most. This is where like they were fucked completely by both the drought and by the Bolshevik policy. And then didn't all this happen too in the dead of winter? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> on top of it, on top you're of it, starving, eating each other, and it's negative degrees most nights. It's cold when it's like fifty for me, dude. If <laughs> Imagine it's, negative. If it's seventy, wearing jackets. Yeah, because we're in California. Because we're dumb, we're spoiled. We are. We are spoiled with great weather. We went to Big Bear a few years ago. It was like forty degrees. I didn't leave the house. It was cold. I was like, "What the fuck, you?" I just stayed upstairs. And you guys throwing snowballs. On my window. It was fun. I would. It was same. fun. I would have done the same. But top of that, this this one report really got to me because I actually thought about it. I was like, shit. Okay, so one woman, right? One woman refused to give over the body of her dead husband because she was using it for me. Now I pondered on this one. I was like, well, as an emotional, optimistic fuck that I am, I was like, shit. Right? They're married. A couple, and probably the guy knew he was gonna die first, right? He was like, "Fuck, I'm dying," and he probably told her, "Look, I provided you food when I was alive, and I will provide you food when I'm gone." Maybe he convinced her, "Yo, your only way to survive is to eat my body." 
This is stri- this, this is strike two of you romanticizing <laughs> necrophilia oh, or, or oh, cannibalism. Whoa, 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 whoa. Don't don't say fantasize, mother. I, I never fantasize. You said fantasize about say, necrophilia. I didn't say fantasize. You said, said fantasize. Romanticize. No, you said fantasize. You can listen to the recording right now. I said romanticize. All right. What? Uh, no, I, 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 no. You're pro. I did not. T- I'm, you're not pro, pro. Fucking, I'm not pro. You're pro fucking. Suck dead my people. dick from the. No, I'm not. And now you're I'm pro not. eating dead people. With two episodes in a row. No. Okay. Fuck. You're taking it out of context. Or, or, the dude's a piece of shit. He's and like, she's like, fuck it. I'm going to eat this motherfucker. He's like, eat my ass. And then she, <laughs> <laughs> she, took, she knocked him out. She knocked him out and Killed literally him. ate his ass. Oh, shit. So that's one of the ports, bitch. <laughs> and there's many accounts of markets, right, all around where they had these non-descriptive meat in the in the in the meat section this mystery means yeah but uh, observers and relief work were like yeah this but, is a limb this is a human limb but it was it was it, it was a norm you know you put yourself in that situation it's either you adapt you adapt or you die and Obviously, the workers are going to be all grossed out. They're going to be like, oh, my gosh, like, what the fuck? But those people who were living there who was experiencing what they went through. They're just thankful to have food. They, at that they point. were just like, at this point, I'm not going to survive. I'm not going to ask. <laughs> yeah. And there was other accounts of these workers where they go to like a butcher or whatever, these markets, and people will bring satchels of what meat. they assume of, 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 yeah, it was meat, but it was human meat because they were saying – they were arguing, saying, make this into a sausage, a meat sausage. So they were like, grind this fucking shit up and make it into a sausage. So I was like, fuck, dude. Just one, hearing about it, just reading about it, looking at the picture, I was like, shit, imagine being there, witnessing that, and then lastly, being part of that. This is what happened behind the scenes of not just the famine itself. Obviously, the agricultural uh, aspect was fucked, but it led to more of human. It kind of pushed it over the edge where, like, they went from, like, all right, we'll be able to manage to, like, all right, this is, we're on, we're, we're in, like, this is uncharted territory for us. We don't know what the fuck to do. Yeah, or they simply didn't care. Because despite of all the reports of cannibalism happening throughout Russia or this region. There's the part that I was like, oh, fuck. The police took no action because they deemed it as a method of survival. A method of, they were like, yo, shit's so bad here. It's a, a legitimate factor, a way to survive. And these accounts, right, were, when it comes to cannibalism, it was either they murder people for food, right, or what's that term? Um, yo, euthanasia? Euthanasia, right, where it's like, yo, this person is going to die for starvation regardless. So let's take them out and let, let's yeah. butcher them and eat them. <laughs> and this is, going, this is going on. What do you think is worse? Or what do you think, well, think would have been worse? Okay. The cops not doing what they were doing. I mean, the cops not doing anything because they're like, dude, it's, it's fucked up. They got to do something. Or the cops punishing and arresting people who were eating people. What What do you think would have been... Do you think what they did by not doing anything was worse than arresting people? 
Do you think the outcome of them arresting people would have been better than just leaving them alone? I think they did the right thing by not just like, all right, yeah. dude, like just letting them out. Because if not, people were still going to die. I'm pretty sure a lot more people were going to die. Because as we're going to find out later on, prisons were fucking filled to cap- beyond capacity during, like, I want to say like 15, 20 years from starting from the Civil War all the way up to where we're going to be taught where our story ends, which is in the 1933, 1934, during the whole Nazino affair. We're going to find out how horrible the prisons were, how shitty things were on top of all this. So he deemed it as a method of survival. They're like, yo, you, you do what you got to do. You got to do what you got to do in order to survive. Sadly, when it comes to the death toll, the exact count is still uncertain. Obviously, they stated that 25 million people were affected throughout the Civil War and the famine, but specifically, the Soviet state and foreign observers found it so hard to gauge the numbers accurately when it comes to who died actually from starvation and diseases and, well, obviously the murder and cannibalism that happened throughout time. Well, throughout this time. But historians easily stated that the numbers that numbers are easily over 8 million when it comes to just specific death counts of the starvation, of the agricultural you know, downfall. Um, that the lives that were taken by starvation diseases caused by this famine. And lastly, the famine was chiefly a natural disaster. That's what famine is. Yeah, it's a natural, natural disaster, disaster, especially when it comes to drought and certain things. In the form of a severe drought in this case. But it worsened by years of war and the forced grain requisitioning by the Bolshevik policy. This is what really took the toll. This is what really made this catastrophe happen. It wasn't just a natural disaster because they, 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 they know how to respond to that. But you apply the civil war that was happening all throughout the Russian Empire. You add that together and you get this. This, this horrible. I don't know how to describe. I, I, I literally don't know how to describe it now. It's like shit. So if, if you didn't think that was bad enough, right? That they were requisitioning all this agriculture, this all this rice grain from, from the poor, from the poor, right? If you didn't think that was bad enough, this everything happened. They got aid from basically the world, and Russia did not stop requisitioning food from the farmers. Mm. They did not stop. They're just like, oh shit, it was just a bump in the road. We'll continue going. All right? So basically, that was that's what Russia was going through in the 1920s, right? The Great Famine. And Russia kind of never recovered. They were, they were still on wobbly legs. And that's when Stalin came up with. Well, not Stalin, but this is when they, when Russia came up with the grandiose plan so in early February of 1933 the head of the OGPU and the head of the Gulag presented Stalin with a ridiculous plan for deporting millions of anti-Soviet elements from the cities and nearby countrysides their plan was that from 1933 to 1934 a million elements were to be settled in western Siberia and as many in Kazakhstan. And for those of you wondering, yes, these elements they are talking about are people. 
and six class of people were targeted for this plan of theirs. Hmm. So, Kulaks was one of these people that were being planned, uh, were, were being targeted, which is the rich farmers. People who were sabotaging the state's procurement plans and other political economic undertaking by the state, a.k.a. poor people, because they thought poor people are not listening to us. Poor people are coming to the city, and if they're coming to the city, they're not working in the farms. And if they're not working in the farms, they're not doing their best to help Russia succeed. So fuck them. They're getting shipped out. The Kulaks who were hiding in firms and workplaces escaping from the countryside were also targeted. So a lot of these farmers, they might have had friends and family that already that were already living in the cities so like dude i need to go work i need some help so the people and so the family in the city are like yeah come on over you can work over here and you know just don't act just don't be weird just don't be suspicious well they were just being suspicious and those were the people that were being targeted they're like yeah you you look like a farmer why the fuck are you working here getting shipped out individuals expelled in the context of cleaning up the usr's Western frontier. So basically, people that Russia, that a lot of officials didn't like, whether if you were a a protester, a whatever, the, if they didn't think you were helping Russia in any way positive, you're getting shipped. <laughs> Urban elements refusing to leave the cities in the context of passportization. We're going to talk about passportization in a bit. But if you didn't have this passport and you were in the city, you're yeah. out. You're getting shipped. And individuals who the courts... And the OGPU's jurisdictions has sentenced in terms of less than five years. You were getting shipped out. So if you were in the city and you were, if you were from outside the city and you were in a in the city jail and your term was less than five years, you were getting shipped out to Western Siberia. And the thought process was, if you have a sentence less than five years, you're not that you're not a dangerous person you, you probably did a tax evasion you probably did something that's not a violence offense you know that's not a violent that you're not a violent offender and they don't want violent people out in the western yeah. gulag i mean the western siberia so if you got a sentence less than five years you get shipped out hmm. so everyone was being deported as labor colonists that's what they were being signed up for you were getting shipped out you pass your thing your record was a labor colonist Obviously, stripping them of any civil rights because you couldn't say anything. You couldn't contact the lawyer. You couldn't contact your family. If they looked at you, pointed the finger, snapped, you're getting shipped, you're fucked. You couldn't do anything but get shipped. And they were put under house arrest in their labor village. And this is the fucked up part. They're like, you know what? We're going to put you in house arrest until we investigate Until we investigate you. Like, okay, the labor village is in Western Siberia. So you're getting the fuck over there. Mm. And they ship you out over there, and that's when you're in house arrest in these labor camps. So you're forced to work there. And you can, and while you're over there, you're going to be used by the government for exploiting timber, mining, and other resources of the Soviet's Far East. So you're in these labor camps. You're like, hey, while you're here, chop some wood down, motherfucker. It's called the labor village for a reason. So according to this plan, 75% of the labor colonists, about 1.5 million people, were to work on farms and in the forest. And within two years, they were supposed to have basically worked off any expense the state had used for the transportation, settlement, and, and, and any other expenses. Hmm. The other 25% were to work in camps of fishing, crafts, and mining, all while having 
to be willing to work on the side to grow crops and build homes to house and feed themselves. So you're, you're working these hard labor camps and after you're done, you're expected to go out and fend for yourself, build your house, grow your crops, feed yourself. Survive. And in order for all this to work and to have production coming in from at least a, mil- a million hectares of virgin land, hectares are, um, so to put it into perspective, the kind of job this is going to be, one hectare is 10,000 meters or 30,000 feet to make it happen. So what they wanted was to have production coming in from at least a million hectares. So they had all these people <coughs> shipped out to this area. That's what? Over 3 million feet? feet hundreds and thousands of miles of just unexplored land they were just getting shipped out to work just go out and work get us get us a b and c but hurry up mm. so 1000 labor villages were to be built at the rate of one village for 200 people 1000 labor villages and each village would consist of a hundred living units of 650 square feet each with each unit housing 20 people so during the first years baths an infirmary and a hygienic station for removing lice and other parasites stables and a garage for machinery for machinery were to be built the second year a school cafeteria a reading room, a store, and other amenities were to be built. So this is the plan. We're going to send all these people out. The first year, they're going to build all the necessary shit, houses, machinery, hospitals, all these places. And by the second year, they're going to start building things that is not necessary for living, but will improve the experience of life there, like schools, cafeterias, stores. So by the second year, all the money we've invested, we're getting back already with supplies. So by the third year, Anything we're getting back is just free money now. That's what the grandiose plan was supposed to be. And to make all this happen, the OGPU estimated this is what they were going to need to see their plan come to fruition. 3,385,000 cubic meters of wood, 10,228 tons of iron and sheet metal, 6,929 tons of nails and 2,591 meters of glass. This is just all they need. That's all they need. To start off. Yeah. Yeah. Along with the supplies, a little over 3,000 commanders and assistants were to be recruited, along with over 5,700 militiamen, 1,000 technicians, 500 agronomists. and 470 physicians and health officers. This is what the plan is. This is, in order for this to work, this is what we're going to need. So on paper, this looked great to them. To them. To them. Out of everything they were checking off to try and make this plan go on without a hitch, they realized that the hardest part was also going to be the most delicate, as they had to figure out how in the fuck they were going to transport all these hundreds and thousands of people and equipment and the food supply that is meant to keep their contingents alive. How the fuck are we going to move all of this to where we needed to go. Mm-hmm. The main problem they had was moving from the point where the railroad and the waterways ended to their desired location. I, I was not joking when I said they're sending these people where to lands where nobody lives. Railways, specifically 
ended at least hundreds of miles before you got to the area where these people were being settled. Roads and railways ended. Waterways ended. So they're like, all right, we could ship them three-fourths of the way there. How the fuck are we going to ship them the last quarter out? We have no idea how to do it. Because these places, like I mentioned, they were situated in practically uninhabited regions where there was no local means of transportation. So to fix this problem, they estimated that they would need 2,460 trucks to move on a daily basis three metric tons of freight over a distance of 155 miles per day. Fuck. So they needed 2,500 trucks to move three tons of supplies 150 miles a day. They needed 90,000 horses to plow 30,000 feet per horse. They were going to need 1,200 tractors to for both agricultural work and transportation. Hmm. And the total expense was estimated to be 1,394 million ro- rubles in transportation alone. That's just for transportation alone. So by doing the math, in 1933, one ruble one was 51.5 cents. And one dollar then is equal to, to about $14.19 today. So if you multiply 51.5 cents by 14.19, you get $7.30. So one ruble is equal to $7.30. And we multiply that by 1,394 rubles, and we get 10,176,200 rubles. That's how much it's going to cost for them to move all these people, all the sorts, all the resources. That last quarter. (laughs) That last quarter. Hmm. And that's just for transportation alone. What a great plan. Right? That's just for transportation alone. That's not counting how much it's going to cost to get all those cubic meters of wood, all all those tons of iron. That's not counting that. It's just getting there. What do we need to get the last quarter? What do we need to help us get to that last quarter? 10 million rubles. Hmm. So to understand the meaning, the place, and scope of this plan of theirs is to see it in context. So you heard my brother talking about how dire the situation was just a few years before. And it wasn't that much different then. In early 1932, to keep up with the demands of Russia's industrialization, they raised the quotas for grain and other agricultural deliveries on the Kokais. Again. As well as on individual farmers. So now, they were not just ordering these... uh, these excess extra grains and, you know, all these grains and other deliveries from these mass farms. But now they're asking the little farmers, the farmers are just growing enough food for themselves. You guys need to start pulling in your weight as well. Targets were raised despite the fact that a poor harvest was being predicted. So it was like deja vu all over again. It's like, dude, we just went through this 10 years ago and it's happening literally Again. So in short, during this period of time, Stalin had a policy adopted called collectivization, which reduced the economic power of the kulaks or the rich peasants 
and demanded that all agricultural goods be delivered and sent to cities to speed up his industrialization plans of Russia. Ukraine was hit hardest with his widespread starvation after they met Stalin with considerable resistance, to which he never forgave them. It was around the 1920s that Stalin started to believe that non-Russians were becoming dangerously self-confident and self-assertive, basically garnering this nationalistic view that everyone not Russian is a second-class citizen in Russia, which we'll see became a thing later on with his passportization policy. Oh, boy. So the prediction of a poor harvest would have been a godsend instead of the famine that actually occurred. So by October 1932, not even a quarter of the planned deliveries had come in. Hmm. 1932, 25% of what they were expecting came in. This was largely in part because of the famine, but also because of the peasant farmers trying their hardest to avoid delivering to keep something for themselves. That like, yo, we're not gonna we're not gonna give you everything. We saw we saw what happened ten years ago. If we give you fucking everything, we're gonna keep at least. We're, so farmers were like, you know, we're gonna send. We need reserves, and they started hiding a majority of the reserves again. Yeah, they were hiding under piles of hay, bags of flour. They were digging holes like miles away from their farms in forests, just so they would not find these grains. Because they're like, dude, I mean, that's what they they live by day by day. Deliveries were so scarce that the few that were being out, they were being intercepted and stolen, which resulted in a law punishing theft of social property, which is all these agricultural deliveries, by 10 years of forced labor in camps, or you get the death penalty. Or you get death penalty. How f- what, they just flip a coin for that? I guess it depends on what you're stealing and how much you're stealing. Mm, oh, boy. And you know what was the fucked up part? If you are a farmer and you're keeping grain for yourself, you're stealing social property because it's supposed to be sent out. Mm, True. So if Stalin's regime wasn't pissed enough as it is, they were put over the edge when many of their elite officials were in solidarity with the peasant farmers they were supposed to be managing. So Stalin had these people in charge of these fucking farmers. And a lot of these officials were like, no, 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 you, no, dude, keep some of this shit to yourself. We just saw what happened 10 years ago. We don't want you guys eating yourselves again. Just, you know. Yeah. I'm going to pretend I'm going to turn a blind they eye. They were being good. They were. <laughs> yeah. So even few went as far as opposing the state's procurement plans. Oh. A few of them actually spoke out saying, why the fuck are you stealing from these farmers again? We, the world literally had to bail us out a few years ago. It wasn't that long, bro. Like, what are you doing? Especially, this was especially true in the greater regions that were most heavily taxed, such as Ukraine. Because why? They stood up against Stalin saying, dude, this is fucked up. Stalin's mad. Go fuck yourself. I'm going to tax you an extra 25%. You better go somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) And the Volga area. These two places were hit the hardest. So in order to get things under control and put an end to this resistance, two committees were sent to Ukraine and the northern states, headed by Vyacheslav Molotov and the other by Lazir Kaganovich. Uh, in the summer of 1932, 
Thousands of agents were sent to these urban areas and now hell broke loose. Mm. So Vichyslav and Lazir, and Lazir were in charge of these thousands of agents. And during the summer of 1932, the country was enveloped. It was enveloped in a constant state of extreme violence. Hundreds of thousands were arrested. It got so out of hand and the violence so excessive that the whole point of these agents being out there eventually lost its meaning. Oh, boy. They were sent out there to go, dude, we know these farmers are keeping these fucking grains from us. Go collect them. It got to the point where these guys were basically had a license to kill. They were just out there doing whatever the fuck they wanted. So instead of just going out there doing their business trying to get the grain so they could send it out to the back to Moscow and Leningrad, they were just walking around with this, you know, BDE, you know, just walking around with their big dicks all out. If somebody looked at the wrong way, you're getting shipped out. Go fuck yourself. And they started fighting people. And people couldn't fight back because if you fought back, you're getting shipped out. So shit got out of control. Last, last situation. A report addressed by an official from the Volga region stated that in less than a year, 25% of the adult population had been the victim of one kind of oppression or another. Fuck. In less than a month, <clears throat> they had expelled over 800 farmers from their own land. In less than a month, 800. They, they showed up, got these farmers out of the land, and shipped them off to Western Siberia. What like, were they thinking? You know? These are the workers that know how to work the fucking farmland. Less than a month. 800. Yeah, I'm trying to picture you. Less than a month. Le- you know, four weeks. 800. Gone. And they were getting sent out to Western Siberia. And here is a small excerpt from that report. Yesterday, I met a large number of Kolkayans who had been expelled from Kolkai at the beginning of February and then taken back at the end of the month. The prison is holding five times as many people as it was planned for. Over the past month, the prison returned 78 convicts, 48 of whom were under the age of 10. Bro, they're arresting children! What the fuck are you doing? Hey, what the fuck are the little shits doing, bro? What I'm thinking <laughs> is to punish the parents. They took the kids. They took the kids. That's what I'm thinking. Okay. <laughs> That's what, like, what the fuck? What does it take? I'm thinking they they need to meet their quota. Bro, They'll take anyone. Out of 78 people, 48 were under the age of 10. Not 10. Under the age of 10. What, what are you doing arresting a four-year-old? They have to meet the quota. Through brute force. <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, I would rather rest the adults, right? The adults, because they're more viable when it comes to work. That's true. If you arrest adults, the kids are going to die. Yeah. <laughs> Regardless. <laughs> so, through brute force, Stalin's procurement plan was completely fulfilled, but at an immense cost. Hmm. At what cost? The producing regions most heavily taxed were only able to beat the targets by not only giving up their seed stocks, which was the reserves that allowed them to provide not only for the next harvest, but to also give the emergency stocks, which was supposed to be aid to any starving kokai. 
So they're like, you know, we need to meet our quota. So not only are we going to steal the seeds that you have, they're going to be for next season. We're also going to take shit that's used for emergency aid in order for us to fill this quota. Oh, boy. So the last time this happened, Civil War broke out and a bunch of people started eating themselves. This year, they're like, you know, we're just going to take everything, and we mean everything, extra and the emergency shit, just so we can make sure we're filling up the quota. So soon after, a major annual session bringing together the party's leading officials took place in Moscow in a five-day retreat in early January. Stalin spoke, and in his speech, he developed this insane theory. That oppositions to his socialism had not been defeated, and they have taken new forms. He said his opposition have taken in the form of peasants, where they will carry the sabotage from the inside. They're saying, we have enemies pretending that they're peasants, and they're coming in, and they're going to fuck up our plans from the inside. Others would leave the Kokai in large numbers and spread false rumors to discredit his collectivized farming. So he's like, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to go out spreading false information about everything good that we're doing to make Russia great. And at the very time he was doing this speech, at the very exact same time he's saying, there's going to be poor people pretending, there's going to be people pretending to be poor that are our enemies that are going to try to fuck us. A large exodus of peasants from areas affected by the famine was growing. There's no food in these farms. There's no food in these agricultural areas. Mm-hmm. There's no seeds, no grains, no nothing. So what do you expect them to do? They're going to go where all the food's at, in the cities. So many officials were certain that these mass exoduses were carefully were carefully organized by counter-revolutionary organizations. Oh, fuck. These aren't poor people. These are just motherfuckers. Yeah, they're just motherfuckers pretending to be poor people so they could fuck us up. Yeah, how paranoid were they? To the point where it's like, the poor are our enemy. Holy shit. So on January 22nd, Stalin composed a secret directive that an end to the mass exodus that put an end to the mass exodus of peasants. Stalin wrote that he has proof that the exodus from Ukraine was organized by enemies of Soviet power for propaganda purposes. That same day orders went out that special patrols be set up, especially in, in railway stations and on highways to intercept all runaways coming from Ukraine and the northern states territories. All those who refuse to return home should be arrested and deported to labor villages. Oh, boy. The other runaways would just be sent home. So that was his directive. You know what? We're going to set up people and railway stations and borders and whatever. If there's poor people coming in, send them the fuck out. If they don't want to leave, they're getting deported and they're going to be sent out to Western Siberia. So if you were lucky enough to not get sent or quote unquote lucky enough to not get sent to a labor village, you were sent home. Which was basically a fucking death sentence because you're leaving your house, your home, your, you, where you live, because there's no food. There's nothing there. Every single person he was accusing were on the brink of death. Oh, Imagine shit. getting all your food stolen and sent to a location. And then you go to said location and you're looked at as a criminal. And if you were lucky enough to not get locked up, you were just sent back home to basically starve to death. Hmm. And in the first month of the of the secret directive, they suspended self-train tickets to peasants 
And in one week alone, they arrested a little over 25,000 refugees. A report that was given two months later mentioned that more than 225,000 were arrested, even though a great majority of them were just sent back home. Tens of thousands were interned in these filtering centers waiting to be shipped off as labor colonists. All this while tens of thousands of other peasants were still waiting to be deported and had been waiting since the end of 1932. Holy shit. During this whole ordeal, the prison systems, they were also suffering. And starting in the summer of 1932, under the ridiculous amounts of arrests, the number of people being incarcerated was beyond insane. It was ridiculous, as most prisons, whose maximum capacity was a little over 180,000, we're seeing numbers north of 800,000. Oh, boy. So how convenient that the Justice Department decided to, quote-unquote, decongest these prisons by settling hundreds of thousands of these prisoners in labor villages, but only ones being sent to one- or three-year sentences as those were inmates who were not violent offenders. So these prisons were overflooded, and the Justice Department's like, you know what, this isn't sanitary, this is not good. We're going to help you guys out. We're going to send a lot of these people to Western Siberia. That should help us. That should help us alleviate and decongest this prison problem. So, again, now we have people being deported from the cities over to Western Siberia. Now we have prisoners, people in prisons who were just, if you had a short sentence of one or three years, bam, you're getting shipped. You're getting shipped out to Western Siberia. So, over the following two months, 57,000 were sentenced to labor camps. 83,000 inmates were sentenced to labor villages. And this quote-unquote decongestion was just the first stage of Stalin to cleanse Russia of its criminals. And for a second phase, it was time to get rid of all quote-unquote undesirables from his cities. And this was largely possible due to his passportization policy. So in less than a year, 27 million people that lived in the city received a passport. And this passport had several objectives. The first objective was to control migratory moves and to limit the immense rural exodus triggered by the forced collectivization of the countryside. So this whole influx of immigrants coming into the cities, they threatened the whole system of rationing that Stalin kind of forced on his people. So at the beginning of 1930, some 23 million people had a claim to these rations. Those are the people that were going to get this emergency food. Yeah. But by the end of that year, the number rose to almost 40 million people. Fucking the amount doubled. Of, the amount of people doubled. So whatever rations you had that were going to help out the city, it was going to go out like nothing. So these were the kind of people he wanted to get rid of. These were his undesirables. Which technically were the peasants. Yeah. Yeah. The second objective was to better identify individuals to establish the exactitude of their social position. So in 1917, which is around the time of the Civil War, they tried to pass this passportization policy, but okay. it didn't get traction. So the second go-around, the passportization served an important purpose. One was that the passport provided the holders' home, their profession, their trade, their trade union, and party card to any official asking to see the passport. Their profession, fuck. Basically, this is the first steps to building a big brother world. So with this passport, so now only 
So, so now this passport was going to show you who lived in the city and who didn't. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And now if you did live in the city, it's going to show you what you did, what party you were from, where you like, where you worked, what kind of profession you did. So now they not only they, like we know you have a passport, so we know you live in the city. And now to present that passport, we know what the fuck you do, where you live and where you do it. And that wasn't like big brother, like super like the government's watching you kind of deal. You had to go get that passport. You had to get stamped twice a year. So you had to go to your local police department, your local thing, and keep that shit updated. So they always so the beginning of the year and the end. So they always knew what you were doing and what you were always up to. Oh boy. The third objective was to cleanse Moscow and the other great urban centers of the USSR of the quote unquote unwanted, such as the Kokai criminals, the antisocial and the socially dangerous elements. So, now, if you did happen to live in the city, it didn't automatically mean that you were safe. Nope. Right? So it's easy to see how the passport was a strong line of defense against anybody the USSR did not want living in their cities. It was here that the term, quote-unquote, elements was dropped. Right? They didn't call these people elements anymore. And they adopted, for the more cruel and fucked-up term, parasite. Mm. Oh, boy. And many of these parasites was anybody that spoke against Stalin or guilty or accused of crimes against the state, like protesting, larceny, and counterfeiting. Individuals without a full-time job or a productive job, they were also considered parasites. <laughs> so if you were a professional gambler, a PMP drug dealer, or someone whose past can make them look like they're socially dangerous, they too were dick out of luck and were put under this parasite list. So for those of you lost and want to keep track of who Stalin and the OGPU did not want in the USSR, the following are the groups being cleansed from the cities. Which are parasites, the beggars, vagabonds, homeless children, minor delinquents, speculators, traffickers, and repeat offenders. So these are the kind of people they did not want in their cities. So even if you lived in the city and you were a vagabond, which is like, you know what? I have a little bit of money, but I'm I just like traveling. This, I just, you know, just, I'm just gonna chill. I have money to pay my bills, whatever. Nope, you're not being productive. Go fuck yourself. You're, you're out. Was in Siberia. Was <laughs> homeless children. Homeless children. <laughs> we don't want you. You get shipped out. Repeat offenders. Yo, dumb. This is your second DUI. You get shipped to Western Siberia. Bro, 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 bro. Homeless children, bro. Oh my gosh! <laughs> What's for parasites? So, so that means if you're a part of of uh, what's that word? Orphans. There we go. I mm-hmm. forgot words. Orphans. So technically, if you're an orphan, no, because you because if you're an orphan, technically you would live in an orphanage. Yeah, but you don't think that would be maybe? Fuck. <laughs> Carry on. Carry on, carry on. Despicable Me would have had a whole, would have been a whole different movie. Oh, boy. 1930s Russia. (laughs) So all this was done to try and clean up the cities and to try and get rid of the unwanted, which is basically everybody who couldn't color inside the fucking lines. Mm. But all this arresting was causing bigger problems rather than solving them. All these arrests and sentences were going on, and while they were preparing on shipping hundreds of thousands to labor camps and villages, all they could do at the moment was moving them from one province to another. And since these criminals weren't going to find any honest work in their new place of exile, 
they would almost immediately resort back to being a criminal and usually joining an army of local criminals that grew enough that it was almost impossible to keep them in check. So while they were collecting all these people to ship out, they still didn't have the plans of how to ship them out. So when these little camps of exiles coming in, they were, they would be moved from one province to another, from one little city to another city. And as these people were moving, if you were a criminal, you were moved to this place. You're like, all right, you're gonna be in this place. You can live here for the next six months. The police are gonna, the police are gonna, of you know, you're under house arrest yeah. in this city. The police are gonna be, you know, they're gonna be on your ass and they're gonna watch you. So if you move to the new city, you're not gonna get, a, you're not gonna be able to get a job because you're there as a criminal. So what do criminals do? Hang out with other criminals. So as people were moving from one province to another. The population of criminals started growing and growing and growing and growing until there was gangs and armies of just criminals just roaming these fucking streets like if it was a fucking outsiders. So to make matters even worse, a, another secret directive was given out and gave strict instructions on seven types of individuals who would be refused a passport. So now he gave one directive, the people we want we don't want living in our cities. And now here's another secret directive. The people I don't want holding a fucking passport. So even if you lived in the city and were working, there was still a chance you weren't going to get a passport. And instead, you're going to get kicked out of the city or sent to a labor camp or village. Number one, individuals not working in production or an, or an institution and not engaged in some form of socially useful labor. So if we're living back then and we're trying to podcast, we're fucked. We're getting shipped immediately. Know, we're getting shipped out. We're all fucked. Number two, the Kokais who had fled the place to which they had been deported. Number three, individuals who had come from the countryside or another city after January first of nineteen thirty-one without a formal invitation issued by a firm or Soviet institution and currently without employment or who are employed but are clearly good for nothings or had been fired in the past. Number four, individuals who have been stripped of their civil rights. So there were people living in Russia that had their civil rights stripped from them. Completely. Completely. Bam. In 1933, there was almost 4 million people living in the Soviet who had the rights? Who had the civil rights stripped from them? Oh boy! And this usually happened by committing by committing certain crimes and being mentally ill. The sad part is, is that not just the person who committed the crime or the mentally ills were stripped, but it was the whole immediate family. Number five: individuals who have been sentenced to exile, as well as anybody maintaining relationships with criminals. Yeah, so there were people who were getting who were getting shipped that were being exiled that mm-hmm. weren't farmers. That weren't poor. That weren't, you know, there was a lot of teachers who are like, you know, they, they taught something that the government didn't want to teach. Mm. Enemy You're of the out. state. You can, so you couldn't get a passport. So a lot of times these people were, for, for example, they were in Leningrad or whatever, and they got exiled. Fuck, they managed to escape. They made their way to Moscow. Yeah. Well, their record followed them like, oh, wait, you got exiled. Go fuck yourself. Just because you're a teacher doesn't mean, you know, you're going to get a passport. Number six, refugees of foreign origin with the exception of political refugees. Last but not least, number seven, anybody related to any of the previous six I mentioned and anyone living in the same household. Oh, 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 boy. 
If you were unfortunate to sneeze loudly and deny a passport, you were given 10 days to get the fuck out. And talking about adding salt to a wound and kicking while someone was down, all these rules apply to not only those living in the cities, but also anyone within 100 kilometers of any city. Oh, shit. So there are villages maybe three miles away from the fucking city. These rules apply too. It's applied. Well, they were close. They were close to the city. So, oh boy. to reinforce this tyranny, more than 12,000 extra police officers were hired and passport offices were set up in each firm, in each government building, and local police stations. And to give you an example of the crippling chaos this was creating, in just the first month after the passportization campaign was put into effect, in Moscow alone, 70,000 people who had applied were denied and had to leave. In Leningrad, 73,000 refusals were recorded. Shit. So if you were lucky enough to get denied, you had 10 days to get the fuck out. Get the fuck out. That's if you were lucky enough. If you were lucky enough, you lost your home, right? Yep. That's the best case scenario for getting denied. Because not you're getting sent out you get you get sent out as Western Siberia. So thanks to the cleansing of prisons and cities, eighty five thousand nine hundred and thirty seven individuals from Moscow were denied a passport, arrested, and sent to a camp or deported to a special labor village between March and July of nineteen thirty three. So many fucking people, dude. So the procedure of getting caught without a passport was cruel. They were subject to an administrative procedure. So if you had, so if you were caught in the city, you didn't have a passport, you'd get arrested. Uh-huh. So within the first 48 hours, you were sentenced with A, immediate expulsion of the city. You didn't have a passport, get the fuck out. B, you were given a list of cities that you were banned from, which were 30 total. Get the fuck out of my city. Also, you're not allowed in these other 30 cities. Damn. Or C, you're finally deported to a special village. And it, and it, and it was supposed to happen in that order. If you were caught with a passport, if you if you were caught with a passport, you get the fuck out of the city. The second time you came in, try to walk around and came in, the second time you were caught without a passport, dude, get the fuck out. And now you're not allowed in these other 30 cities. And if you got caught the third time, you know what, dude? You're getting shipped to Western Siberia. Mm-hmm. Except... That a large majority of the people, they didn't go through this process. And they were just immediately de- deported to a transit prison where on Labor Day, they were sent to Tomsk. And then after a short stay in the largest transit camp for settlers in Siberia, to finally the island of Natsino. So now let's talk about Siberia, which is becoming Russia's land of deportation. So with everything going on in Moscow and in the major cities, it wasn't until February 7th that the OGPU Siberian representative received a telegram informing him of the incoming deportations between winter and summer of this year. So it wasn't until February 7th, a few months before the plan was supposed to kick off, that the people in Siberia were informed what was, what was going to happen. They were informed on February 7th that between winter and the summer of this year, they were going to receive a million people. 
Surprise, motherfucker. And remember, this is on top of the people that had been receiving since the potato famine. Remember those 800 farmers? They got shipped out. They got shipped out to Western Siberia. So they were dealing with all these exportees, all these exiles, because that's where they're being that's where they were getting shipped. And now on top of it, imagine getting a talent, imagine your job, you're in the Western Siberia. You're getting sent all these farmers in. This is no, there's no it's bearing you have to figure out where they're gonna live. So you're getting all these people coming in every year and you're like, Oh fuck, alright, cool. There's land over here. Hey, you know how to dig your you know how to do that little house, you know, that little whole house? Yeah, cool. So you dig so there so these people in these lands, the way they lived is they would build these little huts on floors. What they would do is they just dig a hole, maybe like five feet, six feet wide, and just put a roof on top of that hole. So you kind of lived in a hobbit house that was underground. Yeah. So that's the majority of these houses. So imagine Jeez. you were doing that, and then one day you get a telegram saying, hey, in a couple of months you can receive a million people. Get ready. And this is a little excerpt from that little telegram. They are to be settled as far as possible from any railway, that is, in the northern districts and especially in the immense forest and marshes of the Nirim region. Hmm. Here's a million people. Ship them the fuck as far away as you can. So this region, the Nirim region, the Nirim region covered almost 220,000 square miles. Jesus and the incoming deportees were to work in agriculture, fishing, and forestry so that within the two years, they could be self-sustained without needing the state and feeding them, them, I mean the OGPU and the state, of any need to provide supplies to them. So in this telegram, they expected in two days for the Siberian representatives to provide Moscow with the following information. So imagine, you get a telegram saying, hey, Get ready. There's a million people that are going to come to you in a few months. Also, this is what we're, what we're going to need from you. You have two days. Not only that, let's backtrack a little bit. So all these people were set and they were to work in agriculture, fishing, and forestry within two years. Now, I'm pretty sure most of these people didn't know how to do any of this. To the city people, they didn't. You know how to do any of this. So they so do you think they were trained or like, yo, figure it out? The, the trial and error. Russia didn't care. They're just getting the fuck out of here. And, and we're gonna find out later on. But when shit kinda hit the fan, when it comes to supplies, yeah. The Western Siberian officials are like, Whoa, we're getting sent farmers and they're kind of and they're kind of resourceful, so they're gonna so they're gonna know how to how to build their houses. They're gonna know how to keep warm. They they're gonna know shit. Yeah, they weren't told that all these people were criminals and city people who didn't know how to do any of this shit. The unwanted. <laughs> so moving on to uh, well Moscow, uh, what they needed <laughs> for the following information. This is what they needed: places suitable for settling the deportees along with the number of families that could be settled in each district, the lands available and their quality, the potential lands for development of agricultural fishing, fishing craft work, data regarding the number of Soviet farms considered by the local authorities to be unpromising and that could be put back into production by the incoming deportees, <laughs> needs like cash, Construction materials that had to be met for the settlement of deportees, 
a budget for supply, transportation, farm tools, farm tools, tractors, seeds, and productive livestock to get farming started. How to organize a smooth transfer of, of individuals and merchandise. Concrete proposals for using existing villages to house a first wave of 100,000 deportees to be carried out during the winter. Manpower needed to manage the deportees like guards, police officers. Proposals for organizing transfers by river or by road after the railway convoys had been unloaded. They also needed the availability of and needs for health personnel and medicines. Last but not least, the needs for local means of transportation. So this is all the information that they needed within two days. Yeah. Huh. So that, all right. Sucks to be that fucking guy. <laughs> dude. Or that department. Was, we're going to find out. Right. So. Yeah. This dude. Bro. The one that got. The one. The one. Who got that, the telegraph? The, <laughs> the one that I was like, what the fuck? Like, the one that was like, kind of like, holy shit. The unpromising line? Yeah. Like, dude. Like, they're like, all right. Go out there. Do all this shit. Find me the shitty farms that don't work. That way we could put these deportees to make these shitty farms to work. work. Hmm. He had two days to go out and be like, all right, tell us what lands are good. What, <laughs> what lands aren't. It's going to be like that Patrice O'Neill joke. R.I.P. Patrice O'Neill, where he made uh, this old comic and he was making a joke about when the Miami Dolphin football players, when they, when they went out to sea and they kind of died mm-hmm. or they died. Out in the ocean, he had a joke where he's like, "They didn't even look for them. The Coast Guard just went out into the beach and just looked out <laughs> and went like <laughs> the horizon. No. Yeah, they just looked at the horizon. No, I don't see him. All right, that's basically what they expected this guy to do. He needed to find out. All right, tell us what we need, how much we need, where we're gonna ship this to. One lands are good. One lands aren't good. Tell us uh, the amount of tools we're gonna need, what animals we're gonna need, how we're gonna transport the people from the railways to." These to these lands that are far away, as far as possible from the from these railways, but you gotta give us, you know, the easiest way to do it to do everything. Hmm. This was their fucking plan to deal with all these people, right? And these people were already in jail. They were already in transit all the way to Tom's. There were the plan was already moving. Like, what the fuck? So aside from seeing how not only half-assed their execution was, all these questions basically gave away how this whole thing was being improvised as they went along, which is what it's starting to look like. Uh, they're just they're just, they're just going, they're just you know crossing that bridge when they get there. So two days later, the telegram was being discussed at the highest regional political level, and the committee unanimously told the GPU, the old GPU, no, and rejected it to predict. And rejected the deportation plan altogether. Hmm. So everybody in Western Siberia is like, all right, we got two days to figure this shit out. They're like, no, no. no. Tell them no. What the fuck? No, <laughs> no. So they stated in this telegram that it was literally impossible for them to settle a million fucking people before the end of the river navigation system. Because remember, up once you get up to that point, a lot of navigation has to be to the river. And if you're trying to settle people, when it's the cold season, 
the river's frozen. You're not going to be able to move boats. So if you're not moving boats, that's hopefully that's the easiest route to move shit. No, yeah. We're not going to move all these people over there. We're not going to be able to settle 100,000 of them before the winter. Like, what the fuck? Are you? We're having trouble with these 800 farmers he sent 10 years ago. How the fuck? And at most, best case scenario, with nothing going wrong, the region could take maybe 28,000 refugees during the winter and between 227,000 over the whole year. Ooh. That's best case scenario. That's if they had the land chosen. If it was perfect. If it was perfect. So in a so in a letter written to Stalin, <laughs> they gave reason why the OGP's plan was totally unrealistic. They emphasized that in order to just transport during the winter, the initial one hundred thousand deportees to their assigned place, with the minimum supplies to allow them to serve until the summer, they would at least need thirty five thousand horses, which were more horses that existed in that whole fucking region. Oh boy. And if that wasn't bad enough, Siberia was still a year behind in fulfilling their their obligatory deliveries that we talked about earlier. So Western Siberia, they had to have, they were going to get a million people settled in their lands while they're still behind sending all their grain and everything that they had to send by the end of last year. So they don't even have enough food to send back to Moscow that was part of the whole collectivization thing and now they were expected to to bring in a million people how the fuck are they how are we going to feed these people so western siberia as a whole as you couldn't tell was riddled with huge problems there were famines littering the region kazakhs fleeing, fleeing these famine stricken areas that would ultimately kill almost a third of the population plus on top of this and managing over 300,000 settlers that moved over when the collectivization occurred just two years earlier. So they had all these different problems from going. They had famines. They had people dying because they're leaving. And then they still had all these people coming in trying to settle like these guys were. They were just like, what the fuck? Like, and you want to send a million more? So Western Siberia couldn't even handle the settlers that moved on over. And Stalin wanted them to be able to hand over a million more people in the coming months. But the majority of these arrivals and future arrivals from the cleansing arrived in the most inhospitable and isolated areas of the Niram region. Ultimately, leaving Western Siberia with a large concentration of outlaws. With one person for every 12 people living in this area was a deportee a.k.a. a criminal. So according to official figures of the time, Siberian livestock herds decreased by (laughs) two-thirds over the last three years while the harvest decreased by 45%. All while Stalin's procurement plans increased the yield by more than 30% over this period to meet demands. So that, dude, we have no animals. Two-thirds of our livestock is dead. Our agriculture is down by 40%. And now you're raising the yield by 30%? The OGPU, they knew all this. And they still did not relent from their end goal or receiving almost 1.5 million metric tons of grain and half a million metric tons of meat from Western Siberia. Yes, we understand it's hard, but it has to be done. 
the Siberian met their demand several months late, but at the price of having to slaughter a massive amount of livestock and by confiscating a part of the seed reserve for the following year's harvest. In almost every district in the southern part of western Siberia, these shortages in 1931 developed into genuine famines for the next couple of years. I left for Moscow shortly after the meeting held on February 9th in the office of the Regional Committee of the Party of Western Siberia. On arriving, I learned that it was now a question of deporting 3 million persons. A million to Kazakhstan, a million to some place I don't remember since it was planned to assign these people to a considerable number of places. The third million was for us, the Siberians. After two days of discussions, we were told that there would be 2 million, 1 million for Kazakhstan and another million for Western Siberia. At the highest level, we were ordered to draw up a complete financial and economic estimate of the cost of the operation, and to make it as cheap as possible. We drew up several different plans and submitted them to a commission of the Central Committee, and then the matter was discussed where our minimal demands, those proposed by the OGPU, were once again sharply reduced. To give a concrete example, if the needs were set to be 100 axes, 70 were requested, but the economic ministers allowed it many fewer. They had probably received precise instructions that could be summed up this way. The districts could just provide the horses, means of transportation, and food supply for three months. The special settlers could just take along the belongings, their equipment, and their tools. The funds allocated by the center were supposed to be reduced to a minimum. When I returned to Siberia, I learned that the final figure had been reduced to 500000 for Kazakhstan and 500000 for us. We had to redo all the calculations start all over again. At the beginning of March, we knew that we would probably have a small proportion of D-class elements from the cities banished in connection with the operations of passportization. For that, we would also receive criminals, repeat offenders who had been released from prison in connection with the decongestion campaign that we didn't know at all. So what we just heard was a summary of Alexander Gorchkov the head of the C Block, of what happened during his trip to Moscow in February 1933 after having received the order to settle a million special settlers in Western Siberia. So after a back and forth that lasted three days, Alexander and the OGPU agreed on the final numbers. And a commission was set up to handle the final details between the demands placed by Alexander. And the final numbers looked like this. The OGPU received only 251 million rubles, which is not even 20% of what they originally stated the cost was going to be. They received 960 tractors out of the 2,600 requested, with over 400 of them being used. Or, yeah, used. A little less than 34,000 horses out of the 90,000 demanded were given as they thought this should be enough to get things started. 12,000 cattle out of the 30,000 were given. Mm. So this is so this is the supply. This is the help Moscow gave Western Siberia. As far as seeds, fodder, and other basic food products, which were still being collected, they were given sporadically at about a quarter of the amounts that were requested. 
So if they ask for, let's say, 100 pounds of rice for every week for the next three months, they were instead given 25 pounds for every month. And if that wasn't bad enough, they were being delivered months late. Oh. So by April 20th, this is the figures they had in terms of the number of deportees with operations to begin May 1st. 150,000 elements to be deported from Ukraine, 120,000 from the northern lands, 60,000 from Moscow, 40,000 from Leningrad, 50,000 from Ural, 40,000 from western regions, 35,000 from the central region, 30,000 from western Siberia, and 20,000 from the lower Volga. So by August 15th, 750,000 elements would be deported and 250,000 remaining would be deported in September and October of 1933. This was due to the calculations. This is what the numbers were looking like. So the plan was there would be four daily convoys of 1,800 elements or 7,200 per day were being shipped out. 216,000 per month with two convoys a day to Western Siberia and two to Kazakhstan. So basically they were sending out 3,600 a day to Western Siberia. Mm -hmm. And the unloading time had to be no longer than three hours. Oh, shit. So when these people, when the trains got there, you had three hours to empty them out so the trains could come back and bring you another 3,600. But the regional officers in charge of dispatching and making sure they stayed on script were so slammed with deportees that they say fuck it and they started to ship them out way before May 1st. These camps were being so much riddled. They're like, all right, starting May 1st, we're going to ship them out. They were getting packed. They were over. They're like, dude, fuck. Just start shipping them out. They're going to be sent out anyways. They got to go anyways. So start shipping them out. They started shipping people out early. So you know how a little earlier I mentioned how Siberian officials traveled to Moscow to talk about how unrealistic the OGPU's plan was. Mm-hmm. Well, while that was going on, a young Czechist leader and head of the Regional Department of Settlements sent the leaders of the 30 districts in Western Siberia a telegram letting them know to expect letting them know to expect to receive between 15 to 40,000 elements depending on the settlement's capacities. So, in Western Siberia, there's going to be 30 settlements where all these people are going to get shipped to. This Czechist, uh, this Czechist um, leader, he sent out a telegram to all these 30 people saying, hey, get ready. Each of you are going to get between 15 and 40K, depending on how big the settlement was. So out of the 30 districts in Western Siberia, the Alexandro Sky was a commandatura, which again, a commandatura, which was the chief general in charge of the region, used to manage the new settlers. So the, so the, set, so the place... So, Alexand- so Alexandra Sky, this area was the most northern and the largest mm. out of the 30 districts. And it stretched over 186 miles along the Ob River, or the Obi River, which is one of the three Siberia's largest rivers. And it was also the most dis- distant from any urban centers. Tumsk was over 400 miles away, and the Novosibirsk was over 500 miles upstream. So, this district, the Alexandra Sky, was the biggest and the furthest one away from all the other districts. 
and this region was only accessible by boat from May to October when the OB River was actually navigable. One fourth of the district's 4,000 citizens lived in this region and they supported themselves by fishing, picking fruit, and working in the forests, while the other two thirds were Russian farmers and forestry workers. So in this large area, only 4,000 people lived in this 186,000 mile region. That ain't shit. They weren't living together. They were living spread out in this 186,000 mile region. Most of these people, they lived off the land. They worked by setting, by cutting off trees and setting into villages. They were just super off the grid. 30% of the people of those 40, of those 4,000 people were working in state jobs. These were the ones that worked for companies that were like, all right, we need people to go to Western Siberia to cut lumber for us for a few months. So you'd go out, cut lumber, cut them, and then you'd come back to the city. And then once it was summer, you'd get shipped out again. Ah, uh, okay, okay, you know? okay. So only 30% of those people worked for actual company. The other 70% were off-the-grid people. They did not know what Moscow was. There were 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th generation people living in that land. They don't know what the hell is going on. So these motherfuckers were really independent of any sort of government power. So like remember earlier in the episode of the intro when that old lady was being asked, where's Moscow, where's Leningrad? She's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never heard of these cities before. She was part of these 4,000. So since the 1920, this district's remote area had served as a punishment destination for socially dangerous elements. So since the days of the famine, potato famine, people were getting shipped out to this area as a punishment, which kind of goes to show you that Stalin's method of getting rid of anything he didn't want was to just ship them the fuck out, out of sight, out of mind. So by 1932, the year this district was preparing for an influx of more deport of more deportees, out of the 4,000 citizens, a little over 800 were exiled elements. Mm. Most were most were repeat offenders. But there are also a few dozen political exiles who worked as teachers, you know, like health officers. Health, they worked in health offices. They worked as accountants. And they worked as, you know, specialists for the local administration. So in December in 1932, 2,800 special settlers had been enlisted in the district. 773 men and 774 women. 1,039 children and 278 ranging from 12 to 16 with outlaws representing a large portion of the population. So naturally, the OGPU, they demand the special attention to be given to the policing and the surveillance of these special settlers to make sure their plans will go off without a hitch. But like with everything else, they lack the numbers to properly have a firm policing handle on the situation. One officer at most per village, and they were responsible for reporting escapees and disturbances and also from transmitting complaints he was authorized to give and enforce fines, give sentences involving labor or incarceration for a maximum of one month. Rewards were paid to free citizens who helped capture escaping special settlers. So in, in, in these villages, at most, he had one officer. One. He was in charge of making sure everyone was, everyone, no, no one got out of line. He was making sure to get people's complaints. He was making sure to get, to make sure no one escaped. That was his job. One. And remember, some of these villages were like 800 people. 
Yeah, 600 people, 500 people, which is still a lot for one guy. And this, we're talking about 1930s. I'm assuming this dude did not have an arson, you know, an arsony of weapons like today. Like one cop could have a shitload of guns where he could control a good amount, you know, a good crowd of people. So here is a short excerpt given by a top political official regarding the enforcement and policing of these new settlers. Our commanders have only one fixed idea. A deportee is an enemy. Of course, at this point, it would be false to say that the special settlers are on our side. But we are confronted with a difficult task. That these quote-unquote enemies whom we have uprooted must now be transformed in their new environment. However, our managers and commanders do not understand this two-fold task, bringing into line and re-educating. They think they can do whatever they like with the enemy. I will give a single example among the most frequent abuses. When a special settler comes to see commander to ask for permission to marry, the commander will often reply, I forbid you to marry such a person. Okay. So even though it's really shitty and the civil rights are being stripped from them, a lot of the abuses were pretty harmless for the most part. It's it's shitty. You you the, the, you can't you know you try to get married. Hey, I want to marry this lady. We met here. The guy's nah. like, nah, nah. You know, so like, you better go somewhere <laughs> alone. <laughs> you know, so it's it's shitty, but for the most part, like, you're not being harmed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? At least in comparison with the practices with the Alexander region. During a long report, a certain inspector working for the Department of Special Settlements denounced the horrible practice used in the Alexandrovsky District, the most northern district that I spoke about a few minutes ago. From May to October 1931, nearly 800 socially dangerous elements were exiled to the district, which was absolutely unprepared to receive and employ such a large number of individuals who had arrived in addition to several thousand special settlers deported to the district at the same time. At most, 150 people could be employed during the summer season. The exiles brought in by boat were simply dropped off on the banks of the Obi River and left to their fate. In groups of 5 to 10, they stole the local boats and tried to go down the Obi River. As for the others, they remained where they were, but since they lacked work, they naturally began stealing anything they found. When the locals sought help from the representative, they were just told, what do you want us to do? There are too few of us and we are completely powerless. Help us capture them and exterminate them. Soon the elements started attacking the district officials themselves, going as far as breaking into the secretary of the district's apartment, Piri Plitzen to steal clothes, shirts, and trousers. There he made on his authority the decision to collect all the exiles and send them to an island in the middle of the OB. 
On this island, there were not a single bush or the slightest tree that could be used to make a fire. The weather was terrible, rain, cold, and frost. They were left that way without shelter nor food for six days. A few elements had remained near town and didn't even know they were being sought after. The Perplitzen ordered us to take our weapons and shoot any we found that had not been taken away on the boat. Six officials went hunting. I refused to go with them. When they found the five exiles warming themselves around the fire, they shot them. On the way back, they met a local OGPU officer who asked them, Well, boys, was the hunting good? My comrades boasted. We shot five of them and took the officer to see the bodies. Bravo, boys. I get the shovels and bury them. After six days, all the elements left on the island were brought back and let go. But since they were starving, they immediately attacked the vegetable gardens and started stealing all over again and killing the livestock. Seeing that they could not count on the local authorities, the locals decided to deal with the problem themselves. One night in September, we heard a heavy gunfire that lasted a good two to three hours. The next morning, I learned that it was the locals who had began dealing with the exiles. Eighteen bodies had been found. I saw four of them and a fifth who had a deep wound from an axe, but was still alive. I can tell you that in the district, the number of people being killed was very high. A friend of mine, the head of the militia, told me, asking me to keep it a secret, that in the forest near the place where people usually hunted wild ducks, about 15 exiles had been shot and that all the district leaders had taken part in the execution. Daily lynchings, cold and hunger continued to push them to commit crimes. Eventually, the local authorities decided to organize a concentration camp about 100 miles away from Alexandrovsky on the banks of the Nazina River. I was made responsible for setting up this camp. I set out in search of clothing and footwear for these exiles who lacked everything. I made the round and went to Perplitzen, who furiously told me, Comrade Speck, don't you understand anything about the policies of our government? Do you really think that these elements have been sent here to be re-educated? No, comrade. We have to see it that by spring, they're all dead, even if we have to be clever about it. You can dress them up in a way that they can go cut wood before they're killed. You can see for yourself in what condition they send them to us here, dropping them off on the riverbank in rags, naked. If the government really wanted us to re-educate them, it would clothe them without our help. Considering what I've just said, I beg you to take the necessary steps that are required to write this. Even if it's late.
members of the party, government officials, activists, and even the communist youth organizations. They were all armed when you came this far east in order to be able to handle the attack of quote-unquote bandits. But as you can imagine, the line between self-defense and literal bounty hunting was blurry at best. Damn. So villages soon began to create their defense units as soon as exiles and deportees began arriving in 1931 and 1932. So an OGPU report which mentioned manhunt activities had organized in August and September in 1932 in the village of Tungusovo. And in the course of these hunts, 15 people had been killed. Among the group killed, extended family members who came to visit them were killed. Oh, so shit. people who came to visit these people were, were, being, marked. were being killed too. So these hunters would kill and divide amongst themselves the best quality of things for themselves. And the rest was handed over to the stores who would then sell the worn out or poor quality items. Those bastards. So a few moments ago, we heard my brother read an inspector's long report about what was going on in the district. In the report, we learned that he was ordered to oversee the building of a concentration camp, mm-hmm. which he declined to do, considering he was going to be responsible for the death of possibly hundreds of people. When they told him, you need to go do this concentration camp, he was like, you know what? I'm not going to do it. It's because I know if you want, the only reason you want me to do it is because you want me to make sure that everyone who's sent to this concentration camp has to be killed. And I don't want that in my conscience. So he didn't end up doing it. And they didn't think it was a problem. It wasn't a problem that he declined considering that the leaders of these areas didn't want to multiply the concentration camps. Why? Because they didn't want to stretch their thin person. Like, like they didn't want to stretch what little personnel they had already. In a deposition by commander of the district, he refers several times to the fact that very few of their staff were reliable or sometimes even capable of doing their assigned duties. The personnel that was assigned to this district and largest district, as we come to find out, totaled 22 fucking people. Mm. This was the this was the amount of people that were sent to be in charge of this whole fucking area. Vast fucking area. Mm-hmm. 22 fucking people. And you heard and in the position that I just that I'm talking about a few of the official commanders saying out of these 22 people some of these motherfuckers don't even know what they're supposed to be doing. So guards, militiamen, accountants and managers comprised these 22 people spread throughout this large and unforgiven land. So these 22 people combined with the general sent from Moscow to oversee certain districts, they totaled 44 people. So we had 44 people to direct and supervise a huge territory that totaled more than 31,000 miles, whose half of the population consisted of outlaws. 19 of these 44 people, they were not even official workers, but special settlers recruited into the administration because they seemed quote-unquote competent. So some of these people weren't even, as, if you were sent over to Western Siberia as an accountant, some of these people weren't even accountants before they were sent over. That's why a lot of these people didn't know what the fuck they were doing. Fuck. To give you an example of what I am talking about, Here's a breakdown 
of how Ivan Ionovich was recruited as an assistant accountant at the age of 19 and sent to this district. In 1930, his father was arrested for looking shady. For a year, he was moved from prison to prison without being charged for anything. In 1931, he happened to be in the Tomsk Transit Center, the last center before a year in Western Siberia, and was assigned as an escorting physician to a convoy and labeled a special settler. When he arrived in the region, he was finally able to write to his family since his arrest. Ivan and his brother then set out to find their father, hoping to convince the local authorities they made a mistake. A commander then informed them that a family member of the deportee, they were themselves now under house arrest and with the status of a special settler. Ivan had just completed the 10th grade and was named deputy manager, assistant to chief accountant on the mere fact that he was literate and trained in mathematics. This is how they grabbed their fucking professionals that were sent out to look out for the health, for the well-being of these special settlers. They weren't professionals. They were 19-year-olds looking for their fathers who were like who knew how to read and knew how to knew how to fucking basic math. knew how to basic math. Oh, so you you know how to read? You know how to do your timetables? Bro, you can you, learn. You are now a deputy manager. Go the fuck to Western Siberia. So Ivan's story goes to show you two things. One, the malicious heartless and extraordinarily absurd randomness for their arrests they arrested his dad just for looking shady and by looking shady he had a scarf over his head when it was cold and he came out of the train and he happened to cover his face while the officers were walking they're like why are you covering your face because it's cold and they shipped his ass Hmm. and two it also shows how the shameless lack of personnel allowed many innocent people to enter the administration to uphold positions just thrown at them without any form of training or instructions. So let us not forget and recall that in 1933, out of the 971 employed in the administration, almost half were special settlers. And outside of the administration, more than 500 teachers, health officers, physicians, accountants, and other specialists, they themselves were deportees. Hmm. So when it came to preparing to receive all the incoming settlers, the officials of the, Alexandro- of the Alexandrov district were told in February that they should expect to settle between 25,000 beginning in May. Remember, this is the letter that they first got saying, yeah, you know, this is after the first letter, you know, you know, they had that plan. So these officials remember that big ass laundry list of things that they needed to do. Mm-hmm. So this is what they, so this is what they did to try to figure out as much information during this time, during that time. So they, so these officials, they organized a five-man party to search for places where the 25,000 settlers could live. And these officials responded to the higher-ups that this five-man party knew the area very well, considering they were excellent hunters. And considering the district did not have a detailed map of the region, these five men's expertise of the land was invaluable. So these guys said, dude, we need to figure out what lands are good. Oh, yeah, call these call these five hunters. Hey, do us a favor. Tell us what lands are good and what lands are. Go. And when they and when they oh yeah, we're in, we're looking into it. Who did you get to look into it? Uh, hunters, hunters. Yeah, they're the only ones who know this area, this 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 land like the back of their hand. So after a few days, 
the, Ale- the Alexandrov officials produced the OGPU a plan for settling the 25,000 settlers. They found 30 sites along these small rivers that flowed into the Obi River, each site isolated by marshy zones making escape impossible. So once this plan was set and drawn up, everything was done. Remember how they went to Moscow and they're like, dude, it can't be done. And then they, they kept going plan. and mm-hmm. they kept going back and forth and they finally agreed on the plan. Mm-hmm. This is where we are right now with on this Western Siberian side. So the plan was done. Everything's cool. Okay, we're done. Now we just got to execute the plan. Except that the officials in the Alexandrov uh, um, district, the agency in charge of selling these parties, they had no fucking boats. So even if they, so they said they were done, everything's cool, which in reality, I guess it was because they had everything on paper. Once these people reached the end of the railway, they had no boats for them to transport them from the end of the railway to the Alexandrov district where they were going to go be settled. So they were not going to be able to transport anything or anyone to their place of settlement once they arrived. So they said, fuck it. We'll build some light boats. We have a few months. You know, it's February. They said it's going to be in May. So we're good. Except they didn't have enough of anything. Tools, manpower. Of, they didn't have enough of anything to do anything. So they pleaded with the head of the C-Block, which is the, uh, the agency that's in charge of holding all this, of this um, inventory of food. Mm-hmm. To feed the people that were, people that were being settled, so they pleaded with them to send support, but again, nothing was done. Then, the head of the commandatura, who was in charge of the official who got the letter, who was who uh, who, who grabbed the five man team, the one who was in charge of doing everything, right? He was called along with all the other officials to Moscow at the beginning of March to that one meeting. Yeah. So the plan was done. He, the guy who was in charge of getting everything, was sent to Moscow. So, to break this down, Western Siberia officials were in charge of settling 3 million people. No, wait, it was 25,000. Or was it a million? Well, if you lost count like we did, imagine how the Siberian officials felt. After all, they were given nine Nine different estimates of the number of elements they were to receive. And in their defense, how do you prepare for that? And on top of that, they were told that the, that these new deportees were going to be the same type of deportees they received a few years ago. Remember how I talked about how at the beginning of the episode, about how many farmers were shipped down and had their land stolen? Well, these people were the first people to be sent over to this area, and they were kind of self, you know, they knew what they were supposed to do. They knew how to work the land, they knew how to survive. And this is the kind of people that, wasn't set, that the Western Siberian officials thought they were going to get. So these officials assumed that they would be receiving hardworking farmers, bringing along the families with a few provisions, like tools, and, you know, they were capable of, of constructing a Zemlyanka, which is that little uh, underground hut I was talking about earlier. Yeah. That you can go check out on Instagram, Weird History Details Pond. And they were supposed to build these in the day, which basically an earth house dugout used to provide shelter. But instead, there were sent people who were alone, without family, without tools, city people who didn't know how to do anything. Me, who arrived barefoot with no shirt or pants. So now it's April in Western Siberia. The official that was looking into getting boats built for the arrivals, well, he saw that nothing changed. He left in March for the Moscow meeting, came back in April hoping progress was had was going to be made or something. 
but nothing changed during this time gone. No agreement had been signed to help build boats because the office in charge refused. The office in charge of food refused to release any extra food to help feed the men who were going to build these boats. No new food supply had been provided for this new influx of people because Siberian officials understood that their new arrivals would arrive with the minimum supplies to last them three months. So they didn't ask for food because they thought the people coming in were going to come with three months of food. So at the end of April, the official was informed by leadership that he would be receiving 15,000 people around the end of June and not May 1st, like previously understood. So he was, this is April. He's like, dude, I have a fucking month to receive all these people. And then he receives a telegram. No, 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 it's not going to be, it's not going to be May. It's going to be the end of June. So he was relieved because now he had a few extra months to try and build a bakery, you know, a couple of storehouses to cut wood and prepare, you know, like a stock of construction materials for the arrival of the deportees. Then a few days later on May 5th, a telegram came in informing Chepkov, our official, that plans had changed. He was soon to receive several hundred thousands of criminal and declassy elements in the next couple of days. Four. And that is where we'll end part one of our two-part series on Russia's Cannibal Island. How much stress Chepkov is fucking... Bro, I, I'm stressed. I'm stressed. Man. Wow. So this was the plan. This is how they were executed. And now you're able to see who they who they got in charge to execute this plan. This, grandiose plan of theirs fucking 19 year old kids were out there looking for their dad who was shipped off to work at these fucking labor camps that shit is fucked up and on top of that all of this was going on while there's famines going on a few years ago people were eating themselves it's just it's just a mess all like all around and it's even more fucked up when you're in charge and you have a good heart like this guy or like the the other district though was like yo you're not getting this. They're sending them here to die. Pedoblitzin. Yeah, so Pedoblitzin, he'd probably give no fucks. But this guy. An inspector. He, the inspector, he give a fuck. Yeah, so that's where we're, well, we're going to end part one, and we'll be back next week with the finale and part two, where we actually talk about the cannibal island of Natsino. Natsino. So, yeah, this first part. Maybe not as much cannibalism as you guys expected. I thought it was cool. I so basically this episode break down how shitty the situation was. Painting the picture was for so many innocent innocent people, man. It's horrible, and there's stories of like you know people were getting passports and people were getting shipped off, and we're gonna find out that it's not just elderly people. Or, children are being shipped off too. A mom's with the daughter. They're in a store. The mom has the little daughter's passport because of course they don't want the little daughter carrying it because she's going to lose it. The little girl asked the mom, can I go get chips two, two aisles over? Sure. The little girl goes over an official comes, asks for the passport. Oh, she doesn't have it. She is a homeless child. Ship her away. And they ship her ass away while the mom's in line. And that happens a lot. And, 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 not, only, and not only does it happen to, to children, young children, it also happens to elderly people. What the fuck are these elderly people going to be doing in these fucking barren lands? Like, dude, like, what the f- Man. I hope you guys enjoyed it. <laughs> I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you guys weren't as stressed out as we were. Um, so, 
It's been a while since we've been back. It's been a little over a month since we uploaded anything. Mm-hmm. And the reason was because if you guys don't follow us on, if you guys follow us on Instagram, you guys know that a few, that the last episode that we, if you guys listened to it, uh, our great, our real close buddy, Renee, he was in the hospital. And we are sorry to let everyone know who doesn't know that he ended up passing away in April. And that was a huge blow to us, me. And, you know, he was, you know, you know, he was one of my closest friends. He had, I've talked to him every day for the past five years, every day, because we kind of worked together. And if I didn't speak to him during that day, we'd play, you know, we'd play at night, X, uh, PlayStation Online. So, you know, it's basically, you know, I, we, lo- we all lost our brother. And, you know, it was kind of hard trying to get back into the rhythm of things. And, you know, it was kind of, it was getting kind of dicey there. And, um, that's why we weren't uploading that. Yeah, but that's why we weren't active. You know, we were grieving. And I want to thank every single person who commented, sent us DMs, you know, letting us know we're sorry. Sending the regards. Sending the regards. You know, it really meant, you know, it really meant the world to us. And, um, and you know, and we're going to keep the show going because out of everybody who we knew, he was like the biggest fan of. Yes, of, he was. Of that the son fu- of a. Of the, of the fucking show. So, you know, we're going to keep this thing rolling. And, um. Yeah, so I hope you guys, you know, thank you guys for understanding. Thank you guys for not bugging. Thank you guys for not, you know, letting us grief. But, you know, now we're back and we're going to be doing this. We're going to continue to do it and we're going to continue doing it in honor of everybody. He's He was your brother too because you guys listened to him as well, you know, to Renee Edwardo Gonzalez. So we're going to keep the show going for him and we're going to continue going and we're going to grow this show, you know, to not let him down because that motherfucker loved the show almost as much as. More than any, more than any. Or probably more than we did. Yeah, probably more than <laughs> we did. And um, so thank you guys for um, for you guys' well, uh, wishes and regards. It really meant the world to us. You know, it's still hard. Of course. You know, still hard. Sometimes I forget that he's not alive. You know what I mean? He's not here with us anymore. But, you know, um, we, you know we're going to keep his memory going forward. We're never, you know, we're, we're never going to forget him. So thank you guys so much. And um, join us next week as we continue with our part two of our Russia's Cannibal Island. And um, do you have anything? If no one, if you have anything else to add, I'll no, just thank you for being there. Thank you for the patience. And so, thank you guys, Renee, brother. We still love you. And um, thank you guys. And as always, we are the Weird History Eerie Tales Pod. <laughs>